All right. Good morning, Faith Church. What's going on, everybody? Hey, welcome, welcome, welcome. Good to have everybody in the house. My name is Steve Husky. I'm the lead pastor here at Faith Church. Just want to say it's a privilege to have all of you here at our Florence campus. Can we give it up for our Lawrenceburg Faith family? It's good to have you guys. And for all of our VIPs, if this is your first time here or in Lawrenceburg or possibly you're watching online, we just want to just say, man, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. We say it every week that Jesus, come on, he's the hope of the world. Whatever you're going through, whatever your challenge, your issue, your struggle, if you will allow Jesus into your life, if you'll invite him on your journey, it'll be the greatest decision you'll ever make. Come on, does anybody in this house know that's true? Come on. Well, daylight savings time. Feels like we give up more than an hour, doesn't it? Feels like three or four. Well, listen, on the topic of time, we started a brand new series last week entitled on time. Everybody say that on time. In this whole season of, of uh, this, uh, this topic, we're just going to talk about that, just time and how time works and operates in our life. Last week, we opened this series up with this idea that Paul introduces, and he calls us as people, but especially as Christ followers, to redeem the time. What we found out is, and we didn't really even need scripture for the first part, like you just live life and we know this, that time just flies by. But basically what we find out throughout Scripture from all kinds of different perspectives is this, is that, that life is short and time is valuable, right? Life is brief. It flies by, and so time is really an important resource. And so what we said last week was that we need to learn how to redeem time. We need to make sure that we're taking our minutes and we're turning them into moments because really it's the moments that define our life. So redeem the time. Today I'm going to switch gears, and I want to talk about not just the time in our life, but I want to talk about God's timing. The idea of just timing itself. Think about how important timing is. Everybody shout timing. When I talk about timing, here's how the definition, I want to use it today. When I say timing, I mean it's the exact moment for an expected movement. That's what timing is. Timing is, it's that time, like now's the time, it's the exact moment. Now's the time for an expected movement, like here's what we know should happen. And timing is everywhere in culture. It's everywhere in life, right? Timing. Think about timing. Timing is important in conversations. You can say the right thing, but you can say it in the wrong time. Come on, husbands, <laughs> right? It's about timing. It's about not just what you say, but it's about when you say it. Timing is important in life decisions. You can make the right decision in the wrong time, and that end up being the wrong decision. Timing is important. Come on, for all the mechanics in the house, timing is important in internal combustion engines. It doesn't matter if you got gas and spark. If the timing is not right, it's either going to run rough or the engine isn't going to run at all. Timing. Timing is important. Timing is important in dating. Come on, y'all. Some, some of you need to write this down. If you're like in the dating game, right, the right time to ask somebody on a date, the difference between the right time and the wrong time is the difference between getting rejected, being a rebound, or having a relationship. Ooh, come on, we can pray and go home after that one. <laughs> timing, everybody say timing. Timing is important. In fact, there's, there's lots of research been done. One of the most played TED Talks out there is on the topic of timing in business. That timing is one of the most critical elements in a business being successful. While the idea is important, while getting the funding is important, while be building the right team is important, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is timing. So timing is a huge deal in, in all of our lives, but today I don't want to talk about, I don't want to talk about mechanics, and I don't want to talk about dating, and, and I don't want to talk about business. Today I want to talk about God's timing. God's timing. 
Now, right away, when I throw out this idea of God's timing, probably a lot of us in this room or a lot of us in Lawrenceburg, immediately we, we go to the negative because, let's be honest, a lot of times we feel like we've been left waiting on God, wondering why God didn't come through, wondering where God was at, wondering why he didn't show up the way we thought. And possibly if you've been in church any amount of time, there have been pastors like me standing in pulpits like this that we have made these remarks where we've said things like this, that, hey, uh, God is rarely early, but he's never late. Well, who's on, on whose clock? Because I'm just telling you, on my clock, God's been late a lot. Come on, we talk real here, Faith Church. Anybody feel like God's been late, like God didn't show up, God didn't come through? I know people are like, can you clap at that in church? Well, I get struck by lightning. <laughs> Listen, I'm telling you, from my perspective, God's been late. Pastors and preachers say God's rarely early and he's never late. I'm telling you from my perspective on my clock, God's never been early. He's been on time a few times. He's been late a lot. That's what it feels like. That's what it feels like when I talk about my clock, when I talk about my perspective. And here's why. Because our definition of timing is often as it relates to God, that God did what we thought he should do, how we thought he should do it, and when we thought he should do it. And so if God doesn't show up when we think and how we think and when we think, we just don't think God showed up for us and we call him late. Well, I just want you to know today, while your, while your clock is important, that's not the clock that really matters. So while on our clock, God does often feel late, I want you to know that on God's clock, he is always on time. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I don't want to say that you're like, well, there, you're that preacher now. You're just telling us. He's on time because our clock, our clock is set to our wisdom, it's set to our understanding, and it's set to our perspective, which is limited in every dimension. But God's clock, he has unlimited wisdom, unlimited knowledge, and unlimited perspective. And so his clock, come on, his clock is the one that's on time. He's the one that we have to set our life and set our time and set our scheduling by. I know some of us in this room, we feel like God has been late. I talk to parents, and as long as I've been doing ministry, parents who, who are praying and, and trying to have a kid, and they're, like you look at them as a pastor, you're like, like, this would be a perfect couple. God, why don't you give them a kid? And they've, they've paid a bunch of money, and they've talked to all the specialists, and they still can't get prayed. And they're just, God, Pastor, I'm just waiting on God. And I've talked to people who are waiting for a promotion, like they're being diligent. They've done everything. Like they're, they're, they, they feel like they're doing everything on the job, but God's not come through. They've not got the promotion. People waiting for their marriage to be restored, like their spouses, wheels off. Their kids are out of control. Their family's upside down. And like, they're like, God, when are you going to come through? So I understand that the weight of waiting is often heavy. And we're waiting, God, like, where are you at? Why don't you come through? Again, oftentimes we pull back and we have to understand that, again, we're looking at the clock from our perspective. And I, today I just want to challenge us to turn it around and stop looking at our clock and start looking at God's clock. There's one of the best stories that today we can look at, and I'm not going to even open this up uh, right here, but I'm just going to throw it out. Some of us are familiar with the story of Lazarus. Lazarus, if you don't know who he is, he is Jesus as he ministered. He ministered oftentimes Scripture tells us that he ministered to crowds, he ministered to multitudes, like groups of people, hundreds of people, thousands sometimes would come and follow Jesus, and he would always heal them, he would always restore them. But this person, Lazarus, he wasn't part of the crowd, he was part of the inner circle. In fact, the story, John tells us that Lazarus 
was a homeboy. He was, he was tight. He was, he was part of the inner circle. He was a, he was a friend of Jesus. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking like, you know, Jesus, I don't know about what you do with all them other church people, but me and you is close. You can be late for them, but come on, Jesus, I expect you to be on time for me. But you watch the story and you peel back the pages and what you find happen is this, is Lazarus gets coronavirus. <laughs> it's not in there, but I think that's what happened. Someone hugged him instead of fist bumping him in church. And he gets sick, but it's all good because Lazarus, Lazarus is close to Jesus. And, and Lazarus, he's part, of a, he's part of a trio. He's part of the three musketeers. Because it's not just Lazarus, but Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they're all in tight with Jesus. So they're like, hey, Lazarus, don't worry about it. I know you got a 101 temp. It's all good. We sent a memo to Jesus. And Jesus, we know Jesus. We're close to him. He's going to come heal you. And when you read the story in John chapter 11, what you find happen is while you think Jesus should show up and be on Lazarus' clock and show up and heal Lazarus when he's sick, instead he does this radical detour and almost intentionally goes off path and goes the opposite direction. And you're like, what are you doing? And by the time we find Jesus show up in Bethany where Lazarus is at, Lazarus, come on, he's been dead so long the funeral flowers are dead. Like all the leftover chicken's been eaten. Come on, y'all been saying, listen, if you had a funeral, you ate some chicken. That's just a fact. I hate funerals and love chicken, so it's a real conflict of interest for me. Come on, y'all got to lighten up. So in the middle of all this, right, they're waiting for Jesus to show up. He doesn't show up. Lazarus doesn't just die. By the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has already been buried and dead for four days. And you're looking at this, and you're thinking, you got to believe, like, what was, what was Mary and Martha thinking about Jesus? Jesus, where are you at? I can't count on you. I can't trust you. How come you didn't come through? Like, you got to imagine and anticipate the frustration they felt is probably much like the frustration some of you have felt, some of the dis- disappointment, Lawrenceburg, that you have felt when God didn't come through the way you thought, God didn't show up when you thought. But what you find is so important, and this is such a significant thing that you can take away from the story is that there's a reason Jesus waited. Because had Jesus just shown up before Lazarus was dead, all he would have done was heal Lazarus. But instead, he intentionally waited for Lazarus to die, and not die, but to be so dead that he was stinking in the grave. And we find out that Jesus stood there and called him forth, and Lazarus resurrects from the dead and walks out of the tomb. Stop. Let me tell you why that's important. Is because Jesus needed to prepare some people for his resurrection. And did you know some of the first people who were at the tomb at the morning that Jesus rose from the dead? It was Mary and Martha. Do you know why they could believe that Jesus could rise from the dead? Because Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead. See, what Jesus was doing was he was saying, listen, it's not so important that I show up in your minute as it is that I define a moment. God is more concerned with the moments that we need to experience than the minutes we hope to experience. God, I want you to do this then. I want you to show up here now. And God is always doing something bigger than we can anticipate because he has more wisdom, he has more knowledge, and he has a greater perspective. Come on, somebody. Ultimately, as we move through this, I want you to hear this, that waiting is a trust issue and a training issue. If you're in Lawrenceburg or you're in Florence, you're you're watching online and you're waiting for God to come through, you're waiting for God to show up, I just want you to know that there's a waiting game to be played. 
When I say the waiting game, it's a, it's, a, it's a trust issue and it's a training issue. Waiting is passive, not active. When you wait on God, it's not sitting there twiddling your thumb like, okay, God, where are you at? Because when you sit there twiddling your thumb, you start questioning what God is doing. But when you, are, when there's, when you, when you wait the right way, when you wait actively instead of passing, passively, it changes the whole game. Waiting is a trust issue. Listen to this, Ecclesiastes 3.1. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, here's what Solomon said. Solomon said, for everything, there is a season. Every voice, Lawrence Burke, Florence, read this. A time for every activity. He was saying, listen, I know, it feels, I know life feels chaotic. I know it feels disjointed. I know it feels like, like what's going on? When is God going to come through? When am I going to get the job? When am I going to get pregnant? When am I going to get healed? Like, God, where are you? What, what Solomon is saying is, I want you to know, while it doesn't always feel like it or look like it, from our perspective, God's got a timetable. Come on, somebody. You better believe God's got a calendar and your name's written on it. God's got, a, God's got a calendar and the steps and the days and the seasons of your life are written in it on his calendar. I'm glad y'all are excited about that. I'm, I'm thankful that I'm on his calendar. But I want you to notice what Solomon says. He says, for everything there's a season, a time for every activity under, under heaven. You know what he's saying? When, he's, when he uses this phrase, when Solomon says that there's a time for every activity under heaven, what he's saying is not the difference of heaven and earth. When he says under heaven, what he's saying is that it's all under God's control. Everything happening under heaven is under God. God is sovereign. Come on, God is in control of circumstances. God is in control of calendars. God is in control of time. Come on, I know it doesn't look like it, but Solomon is wanting us to understand that there is a calendar and God is 100% in control of it, which means if he's in control of the calendar, I got to trust the one who's in control of the calendar. I trust God's timing. Timing is a trust issue. He goes on, he says this in Ecclesiastes 3.11, yet God has made everything beautiful in its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, come on, every voice, read this with me. People cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. Did y'all hear that? <laughs> if you could see the whole scope of God's work, you would be God, and I would be God. The reason I panic the reason I worry, the reason I fret is because I can't see it all. So if I can't see it all, I got to trust there's somebody who can see it all. The reason waiting is a trust issue, the only way you're going to wait well is to know you're waiting on the one who is faithful, who is good, who is loving. Come on, somebody. He is sovereign. He, he, I'm, I'm in his plan, and I'm, I'm his child. I belong to him. Come on. The one, I, I don't trust myself, but I trust the one who's in control. Again, he's, he sees some stuff that I don't see. It, it, football season. Anybody love football? Too bad it's basketball season. NCAA, get your brackets out, baby. I'm not a betting man, but I do put a couple dollars on the... No, I'm just kidding. Here we go. I knew it. We need to find another church. So, <clears throat> I don't bet. When you know you're winning, it's not really a bet. <laughs> I'm just kidding I don't even make out a chart. <laughs> so anyways, football season, I, I know there's a lot of football fans here in this area in Lawrenceburg. I know, I know, I know Alabama and Tennessee and Auburn and Ohio State. I know all of us love football down here in the South. I just threw that one in right there at the end. 
here's the thing. For all of us that watch football, here's what we know happens is, is that the head coach stands on the sideline, and the head coach feels like he's in control of the game. But notice the head coach on the sideline, he has a perspective of all the players. His head is equal to all the heads on the field, which means he can't see everything really that's going on in the field, which means coaches have been smart enough to figure out if we're going to win the game, we got to get a perspective that on the field don't give us. So not too long ago, they started putting coordinators, specifically defensive coordinators, up in the boxes. Do you know why? Because in the box, you can look down on the field and you got a perspective that the sideline won't give you. And that way, the coach can play a better game because he's got a better perspective. Can I just tell everybody, Listen, we serve a God who has a perspective over life, a perspective over government, a perspective over eternity, a perspective over your storms, a perspective over your pregnancies. He's got a perspective that we don't see, and we just got to trust that there's a coach calling the play. And listen to me, that we'll, if, we'll, if we'll run his play that he sees, we can get a win in life. Come on. God's view is to our advantage. God's view, I just trust God's view. God sees what I don't see. He sees the long game. He sees what I don't see. He understands what I don't understand. If I seen it all and understood it all, I'd be God, but I'm not. But I trust the one who is because waiting is a trusting game. What's crazy is a lot of us in this room, we can trust God with our eternity, but we can't trust him with our time. Oh, come on, that will preach right there. Jesus, you got me. When I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Jesus, you're in control. You forgive me. Wait a minute. You're telling me you can trust God with an unlimited, like eternity's outside of time. You can trust God with your eternity, but you can't trust him with the, with the 70 years of your life. You can't trust him with the minute you're waiting on. Come on, if I serve a God who's good enough and faithful enough, I can depend on my eternity. Come on, I can, be, can depend on his timing. Come on, somebody. God's faithful. So waiting isn't passive, it's active. When you wait on God and you find out in life as you're growing in your faith, this is part of us growing up is knowing who God is and, and learning about him. And, and walking in faith means not always operating by what we see or what we feel, but operating what he said. And so when you find out that God is faithful and God is omniscient and God is loving, when you start realizing that, then you can sit back and you don't have to worry because when you wait right, worry starts to fade. Waiting right should make you wonder less. Waiting right should make you wonder less. When you're waiting actively in faith, you don't have to sit around and wonder, God, when are you going to come through? God, when are you going to show up? God, when are you going to make a way? No, when you wait right, you don't have to worry because, God, I trust you. If you ain't come through yet, there's a reason. And I trust you with the reason. I trust you with your timing. I trust your path over my path. I trust your plan over my path. Come on, does anybody in this house need to trust God a little bit more? Come on, we just need to trust him. God, I trust you. Here we go. Waiting isn't just a trust issue, Lawrenceburg. Waiting is a training issue. Say, what in the world are you talking about? This is really important. If you didn't get this whole first part, some of you need to hear this. Some of you think you're waiting on God. The truth is God's waiting on you. Come on, you, you, the, the thing you're hoping for and the thing you're waiting for and the thing you're praying for, you ain't ready for. And so while you think, God, I'm waiting, come on, God, do the thing, show up, come through. God's waiting on you while you, while you think you're waiting on him. It's, it's tax season, one of my favorite times of the year. I hate, like y'all just can't even imagine. I know you shouldn't hate anything, but I hate tax season. <sighs> Let's have a moment of silence. <laughs> and uh, 
it's because for us, I don't know how other people do taxes. Taxes for pastors are very, very complicated. We keep every single receipt, every receipt all year long, stack them up. We have thousands of receipts because we make millions here. And uh, <laughs> he makes millions. And so we keep every receipt. So when you get to the year, in order for us to get ready for tax season, we take all the receipts, we break them into categories. Once they're broken into about seven different categories, then we put them in chronological order from January 1st to December 31st. Then we put every one of those receipts on spreadsheets, and then we break those spreadsheets down into sub-spreadsheets, and that's how we turn our taxes into our tax preparer, our accountant. So it's, I just want you to know, it's tedious, it's, it's, it's time-intensive, I hate it. And so a couple years ago, I just decided I'm going to have somebody else do it, and so I started paying our oldest daughter to do it. So you do it, take that off me and I'll pay you to do it. So this year, right, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting on her because I'm like, hey, we got to get our taxes filed. So I gave her all the stuff, all the forms, all the tax documents, all the receipts, and she's putting them all in and she's doing her thing. While I'm waiting and I'm starting to get impatient, like, come on, you got to finish so we can get our stuff filed. We're here come to find out she couldn't finish doing our taxes and getting all our receipts together because I didn't give her all the receipts she needed. There was about seven or eight things that she still needed in order for her to complete her job. So here's why I'm telling you is while I'm over here waiting impatiently for her to do her thing, she can't do her thing because I've not done my thing. Come on. The reason God hasn't done his thing in your life, in your family, in your promotion, in your work, in your dream, isn't because God is behind. It's because you're behind. We're not waiting for God to catch up with us. God is waiting come on for you to catch up with him because it's a training issue look at the life of Moses Moses if you don't know his story it's such a powerful story I'd encourage you to to dig into it more than we're going to today but Moses some of you know his story Moses in the Old Testament we find his story really begins in the second book of the Bible called the book of Exodus his story picks up where the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, ends, which is we find this small family of people that is the beginning stages of the nation of Israel, and they've settled in Egypt. And between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, the people of Israel have multiplied from tens to hundreds to thousands to bordering on a million people. At this point, in the beginning of Exodus, Pharaoh gets nervous that these foreigners living in his land are going to possibly raise up and come against the Egyptian empire. So in order to keep them down, he makes a decision to neuter them by killing every male child that's born. He doesn't want them to have the power to raise up, so he does everything he can to minimize their strength. And in the middle of this, he takes them ultimately into slavery and makes the nation of Israel a million strong, his slaves. And so you're watching, and, and as you read the story, unless you don't have a heart, you're like, God, where are you at? Like, your people, these are your people, and they're, they're in bondage, they're slaves, not for a decade, and not for 50 years, and not for 100 years, but at this point in the story, for over 300 years, and you're waiting, when is God going to deliver his people? Well, at the same time, then you get into Exodus, and it introduces us to this person, Moses, who we know right away is going to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. So you're waiting for God's people to be delivered, and you're waiting for Moses to be the deliverer. Are you all with me? And it's all a timing thing. 
And the story picks up in the middle of all these male children being born. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. Come on, everybody read this. About this time. A man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. That was the beginning of Moses. God says, now's the time. Well, why not 100 years ago? I don't know. I trust God's timing because timing is a trust issue. Why not 200 years ago? I don't know. I trust. But all I know is God looked at that moment and says, now's the time to bring the deliverer so my people can be delivered. Are you all with me? Watch. I know you're like, you're not giving us anything. I'm getting there. So Moses, and you know the story, some of you who grew up in Sunday school, Right, Moses is born, and his mother, Jochebed, some of you didn't know that was her name, Jochebed, she hides Moses for as long as she can. She's afraid Pharaoh will kill him. And eventually, when she can't hide him any longer, you know, we know the story. She pushes him out in a, in a little plastic baby carriage, because that's what we use in Sunday school, because we didn't have an ark of bull rushes. We don't even know what that is. And she pushed him out on the Red, on the Red Sea. Some of you don't know this, but she hid the bait, and she put him out on the, on the Red Sea, which was full of crocodiles. And that's where the song starts, like, baby, croc, bop, 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 bop. Like, they're like, is he going to get eaten? Like, what's going to happen? Well, before he gets eaten, Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, sees baby Moses floating in the plastic deal, the Hasbro deal, and she plucks him up. And all of a sudden, from the time to deliver, this is so important, don't miss this, because it was the right time. From the time the, the, the deliverer is born, for the next 40 years, he's raised in the house of Pharaoh. He's raised as one of Pharaoh's sons. I'll come back to that. At 40 years old, one day we catch him, and he's walking out, and he comes across, uh, he comes across a scene. Now, you got to remember, he's been raised in Pharaoh's house. So while he's out walking about, he's, dre he's dressed like an Egyptian, He's acting like an Egyptian. Come on, he walks like an Egyptian. <laughs> Come on. And he's strutting around. He's got gold robe on. He's set. He's got rings. But he sees one of his brother Jews. He sees one of his Jewish family members getting beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster. And he gets ahead of God's time. And he kills the taskmaster. Now he spent his first 40 years in, in, the, in the palace of Pharaoh. But then he goes on the run. Do you know where he goes? For the next 40 years, he's on the run, so he goes, and he goes, and he hides on the backside of this place called Midian. And for the next 40 years, he goes from being this lush, pampered, spoiled brat to having to work a full time on the backside of a desert, learning how to shepherd sheep. Bye. And he don't get to sleep on nice mattresses. He ain't got air conditioning. He ain't got people to fan him. He ain't got slaves to feed him grapes. He's got to work his nails to the to nubs. He's got to learn how to make it all happen. And then it says this. Watch this. So after 40 years in Pharaoh's, in Pharaoh's palace, and then another 40 years on the backside of a desert, it says this. Exodus chapter 2. Are you all with me? Okay. Exodus 2. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. And they cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Watch this, verse 25, Lawrenceburg, Florence, everybody read it. And he looked down on the people of Israel, and he knew what? It was time to act. Everybody say that. It was what? Time to act. So the whole time, we think, God, where are you at? Moses is like, I thought I was to deliver. How come you're not using me to deliver? For 400 years, the people of, of Israel who were in bondage are like, God, where are you at? God, we can't count on you. God, you should have showed up. 
You know what God was waiting for? They weren't waiting on God. God was waiting on all these things to align. And when it all aligned up, God says, now's the time. Oh, come on. Some of you are going to come into a season. Now's the time. You've been waiting for stuff to align, waiting for stuff to work out, and there's a time that's about to come. Here's why this is important. Because in order for there to be the right deliverer that could take the nation of Israel and lead them out of Egypt into the promised land, you know what they needed? They, just didn't, need it. they didn't just need somebody. They needed a military leader because there was going to be some fights in the future, and they needed somebody who can fight and knew how to fight. They needed somebody who had some diplomacy skills, who could talk to some other leaders where they didn't have to fight. They could just have a conversation. Well, where did Moses get that? Moses didn't have that as a 20-year-old. He was still to deliver. He just wasn't ready yet. For 40 years in the palace of Pharaoh, he learned military skills. He learned how to be a general. He learned how to do diplomacy. You know what God was doing? God was training him in the palace. And then when God took him out of the palace and put him on the backside, he was still getting him ready for what he was preparing him to do, which means he was trying to break the spirit of bougie in his life. You know what bougie is, again, where everybody was handing him stuff, and he was, no, he needed to learn, listen, you're going to be in the wilderness, so in order to spend time in the wilderness, you need to get ready for the wilderness, and you get ready for the wilderness by being in the wilderness. And you know what he was doing while he was in the wilderness? Again, he was learning to shepherd sheep. Sheep are rebellious, and they're hard to get along with. You know what the nation of Israel was like? He had to lead a million Israelites through the desert, and they were hard to get along with. Where did he learn to shepherd a million people? By being a shepherd on the backside. What I'm trying to tell you is in the whole time we look at the story, we're wondering where is God at? Why isn't God showing up? When is this schedule? And the whole time God said, no, no, you ain't waiting on me. I'm waiting on Moses to be ready to be the deliverer I need. And I'm waiting on Israel. I know they need deliver, but I'm waiting for them to when it happens. They'll know they didn't do it, but I did it. God was waiting for the right time. Come on, you're not waiting on him. A lot of times we, he is waiting on us to be prepared for the season he's taken us into. Come on. I see this, uh, and I, I don't mean this in a, in a, in a judgmental way. I, it is judgmental, but I don't really mean like as critical maybe as it sounds. But if you, I mean, if you watch news, you see professional athletes go broke all the time. Anybody see this? I mean, and it's crazy. Well, statistics are out, and they're, they're, they're condemning. They're telling. Think about this to make you feel bad if you don't already. <clears throat> the average professional athlete in America makes more in one year than the average American makes in a lifetime. I know, right? You're like, hmm. And yet you look at it, and they're going broke by the hundreds. You say, how can people who make so much money go broke? Almost 80% of NFL players and almost 60% of NBA players file bankruptcy within five years of retirement. Isn't that crazy? Two of my favorite athletes all time, AI, Allen Iverson, come on, one of the best point guards to ever play the game. If you didn't get to watch him, you got robbed. He made $150 million. Not $150, $150 million, and that cat is broke like a joke. How, where, $150 million? Mike Tyson, without a doubt. One of the greatest all-time fighters, for sure, one of the greatest knockout punchers to ever get in the ring. Made $400 million in his career, and he's broke. How do you get broke when you have $400 million? How do you get broke 
when you got $150 million? How do you get broke when you make more in a year than most people make in a lifetime? You know how? Because most of these cats grew up with nothing. Dad wasn't around. Mom's out working two, three, four jobs trying to make it work. They didn't have anything. All they had was the game. And so they went through elementary school and went through travel ball and went through high school and most of them went off to college. And they finally end up in the NFL. They finally end up in the NBA. They finally end up in the MLB or whatever it is. They finally get there. And all of a sudden, they go from having nothing to being multimillionaires. And in that one second, they have wealth, but they don't have any wisdom. They've earned their dream in a moment, but they don't have the experience to manage it. It's not because they don't have enough money. It's because they didn't go through the season of getting ready to have that kind of money, and they don't know how to manage it, and people take advantage of it, and they don't know how to spend it, and you got people like Mike Tyson buying gold toilets. And again, I, I don't say that as an indictment. My point is it's easy for us to look at athletes and say, how foolish of them and I'm telling you, God's looking at some of us saying, how foolish of you. I, you're not ready. You're not ready for what you're praying for. I know you think you're ready for a kid. I know you think you're ready to get married. I know you think you're ready for this thing. I know, I know you think you're ready for the promotion. And you're praying and waiting on God, frustrated with him, saying, come on, God. And God is saying, no, I'm waiting on you. For my, my entire, entire ministry, my heart, so you always understand my heart as your pastor in the pastor's house is always to reach people. People come in, they say, this is a big church. It, good. And it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. We'll stop growing when we've reached everybody there is to reach in northwest Alabama and middle Tennessee. And still then, we're going to keep reaching. Because I needed somebody to reach me. And we need to be a church that reaches people. But I'm going to tell you, like, I've been praying for what I'm in now for 20 years. But I started out first place in ministry when we walked in. There's five kids as, as youth pastors, and we left, and we was running 40 or 50 kids. And we walked into our next place of youth ministry, and we walked in. There's probably 15 kids, and we left. We've run about 150 kids. Walked into our first church leading that church, and we walked into about 35 people and left running 500 people. Walked into this church running about 450 people. Now we're running over 3,000 people on two campuses. No, no, here's my point. Here's my point is, had God given me 20 years ago when I was a kid, 3,000 people in two campuses and a multi-million dollar budget, it would have crushed me. It took me 30 years of ministry to get ready for the moment. Are you all hearing what I'm telling you? If I'm like, God, where are you at? God, why aren't you multiplying my ministry? God, why aren't you sending more people? God's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not me, it's you. You're not ready for what I want to do. And I'm just trying to tell you. That it's a, it's a trust issue. If God isn't doing what you think he should do, when you think he should do it, then trust him that he loves you. He's got a perspective you don't have. He's got wisdom you don't have. He sees what you don't see. So, Father, I trust you. I'm going I'm to wait well, and I'm going to stop wondering and worrying. In the season of your waiting, in the season of you waiting for a spouse, train yourself to be the spouse you're looking for. In the season of waiting for your promotion, listen, be diligent to be the best you can at the job you currently have. Come on, serve well, give well, live well. Be the best you can in the moment until God comes through. And be, be in training mode. What is it that you need to learn? What is it you need to accomplish? How is it you need to grow? Again, as we wait on God, again, God is waiting on us. 
God is oftentimes getting you ready for the opportunity while he gets the opportunity ready for you. God is oftentimes getting you ready for the opportunity while he gets the opportunity ready for you. So it's, here's what I'm trying to tell you. It's not a matter if, of if you wait. It's just a matter of how you wait. I wish I could give you the magic key or the, the magic verse so you don't have to wait anymore. Here's what I know is you're going to have to still wait in life. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of how. And God doesn't want you to wait in confusion. God wants you to wait in confidence. We're about to sing a song in a minute that we've been singing for the last couple of weeks. God, even when I don't see it, come on, you're moving. Even when I don't feel it, God, you're moving. And so he's a way maker. How many of you in this room or in Lawrenceburg, if you were honest enough to say you need to work on your trusting when it comes to God's timing? Come on. I just need to trust you, God. I, I need to trust you with my life, my situation.